going to continue on here this morning. Hope you guys got into a good conversation. So we asked that question because um, many of you probably know tonight's the Oscars. And you might not know that Mill City Church has a movie watchers group, okay? You can, you can get the info, millcitychurch.com slash groups, lots of groups. Um, they, they, I don't actually know if they invite you, but I'm going to invite you tonight to their Oscar party. Okay, that was some claps from them. 6 p.m. at the Mill City Commons. Just show up. And they're going to watch the Oscars together, so that'll be really fun. That'd be a good way to, to, to onboard onto that group. Um, but uh, hey, special welcome to anybody who's here for one of the first few times. We'd love to get you connected in those groups and in various different ways here. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, just a special welcome. So glad that you're here joining us. I would love a chance to, to meet you if I haven't had a chance to do that yet. Um, some of you might know this, but those of you who don't know me, my husband and I had the awesome privilege of going to Africa the last two weeks and literally got home last night. So that's maybe like, a, I don't know if it's a warning about the sermon or like a, I don't know, something, some sort of precursor at the beginning. Um, we'll see how jet lag and sermon, whatever, just, just feels like you should know. And somebody during the first service was, had moved here from Cape Town. How cool is that? So if you just moved here from Cape Town, please tell us. Um, it was amazing. We've got a few South Africans here in our community, and it was just amazing to see uh, such a beautiful, like we were singing about the mountains and the rivers and the animals. It was just such a privilege. So we're so grateful, and I'm also grateful to be here and to be able to, to preach today. We're in a, a conversation called The Kingdom is Here. And we've actually been in the book of Matthew since the beginning of the year, and we're going to continue through that, just trying to take a deep dive into the gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus' life, his miracles, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection um, as we look forward to Easter. Uh, just celebrating that, digging into that, and learning about Jesus' ministry and how Jesus himself said the kingdom of God is near. And we've also been talking about this tension that we feel because, as many theologians would say, the kingdom is here already, but also not fully here yet. And so we see the kingdom breaking in and healing and freedom and forgiveness happening all around us, but we long for more, don't we? We long to see all the wrong things made right, and we know there's a future hope where Jesus will return and make all the wrong things right. And so we're stuck in that messy middle, and we're engaging with what Jesus said about that as we go through the book of Matthew. And today we're going to take a turn towards kind of an important moment in the lives of the disciples, these, these 12 people who've been following Jesus, we see an important shift happen in this part of the passage. So let's pray together and we'll jump into scripture together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the privilege to worship here in this school. God, we pray that your spirit would come and fill this place now. We thank you for being a God who is with us, but we also ask that you'd continue to be uh, present in the school as students and teachers and faculty come back this next week. God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and that uh, whatever you want, these people that you love, to take with them today, that you would uh, leave those words with them, and anything else that's not for them would, would just fall away. We thank you for your word and for the stories about you, Jesus, and so we ask that you lead us and guide us through that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so when my brother and I were growing up, my little brother, he's not really my little brother, he's a foot taller than me now, but, and has been for a long time, we had only a few things in common, we always got along, we all only had a few things in common, and one of those things is that we were both ice hockey players. Okay, so we both played hockey. It was a bonding experience for us. And I think I brought a picture. Okay, 1990s, Rob and Steph. Rob had to have braces. I didn't. <laughs> Rough. Um, but, you know, we had it all worked out. Now, just a few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to take his two little kids. So I, I'm a proud auntie of, of Amos, who is seven, almost eight, and Mabel, who is five. And it was the first time that both of them had gone skating together as brother and sister. 
So you can imagine my brother and I are so excited because like you do with your kids, you know, so excited for them to experience something that you love. And so, you know, brother and sister, Rob and Steph have been skating together and we would go out and skate and the kids would watch us and, ooh, we can skate backwards and wow. And we both are retired from hockey for at least two decades now, but we still got it. We still got it. And the kids are impressed, right, with how we have these moves. So we're thinking it's time. Strap the skates on the kids. Let's get them out there. It's going to be just this magical experience. Don't parents often feel like grandparents? You're like, we're going to take the kids. It's going to be magical. No problems. No conflict. But we had forgotten just how challenging it is to learn how to skate. <laughs> and so we're bringing the kids out there. And, and the first thing that, that Amos, the older one, thinks, I want to get one of those, uh, those bars that holds you up so that you don't fall. You know, but there was only one of them left, so that needed to go to the little sister. And so he wasn't super happy about that. But we said, you can do it, buddy. You're ready to skate on your own. So look at this 10-second video of him skating on his own for the first time kind of maybe more walking. You got this, buddy. You're doing it. You're doing it. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Dad's behind you. Dad's right behind you. <laughs> Just in case. He made it. He didn't fall. It was awesome. Uh, now, Mabel, this was her very first time on skates, and she had a little bit of a different experience because she got that big bar to hold her up, but she was not strong enough to even push it. So Uncle JD had to give her a push. Check this one out. All right, Mabel. Skate, skate. She's not even moving her feet. <laughs> and then Mabel, she's a little more daring than Amos, like a lot of second children are, like, I got this. So she tries to make it on her own and, of course, falls down. So this is the emotional aftermath of that situation. She was physically fine, you know, but just the first time you fall when you're skating. But here's the thing. The kids were ready. They were ready to go for it. They were ready to learn how to skate. And every year that they go out and they skate again, they're going to grow in their confidence. They're going to get a little bit better. They'll fall still probably like we all do. But they'll know that you can get back up again. That's what practicing and learning how to do something is. So even though it wasn't the per perfect picturesque experience that we were picturing in our minds, uh, brother, sister, skating with brother, sister, it was still really fun. And I know they're going to get better and better. And this story that just happened a few weeks ago, it reminds me so much of this moment in the book of Matthew where the disciples have watched Jesus do all these incredible things. And now Jesus is saying to them, it's your turn. It's time for you to step into this. He's like, you got to, you know, for the metaphor, strap on your proverbial skates and you're going to get out there. You can't just watch on the sidelines anymore. You might fall down. Uh, you're going to be okay. Uh, you, it might be a little bit rocky at first and it's going to be a little awkward when you're starting to do these new things, but you can step into it and you can do it. There might even be a little bit of tears. If I was going to guess who was going to cry about how hard it was to step into this, I think it'd be Peter. He seems really emotional to me. So, but you know, he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. But we know it was a little bit rocky for them as they stepped into this for the very first time. It was, it was a little bit challenging. And, and so we see this reality where Jesus is saying, it's going to be hard, but you're ready. It's going to be something you have to learn, and it's not going to feel as natural at first to do all these things that Jesus had been doing right before their eyes, but you're ready to do it. And he gives them really specific instructions. And I think about how uh, they were getting together every night. You know, the disciples are with Jesus, and they'd get together every night, and they'd be like, man, wasn't that incredible what we saw? Jesus was healing this person that had leprosy or, or, and he actually touched him. That was nuts. Nobody does that. And, and did you notice when that woman, she grabbed just his coat and she was healed just for that. And then you, wasn't it nuts when we thought we were goners on that boat and Jesus was taking a nap and then he just got up and spoke to the wind and the waves and it stopped? That was incredible. Jesus was doing all these incredible things in front of them. Did, 
what about when Jesus took all those demons and cast them into the pigs? Why did he do that? I don't know. That was weird. Poor pigs. I mean, you can imagine the conversations that they had every single night. And so I wonder how they were feeling when, as we'll see in our passage today, Jesus turns to them and says, all right, now it's your turn to go do what you have just seen me do. And I think for us, in our lives, Jesus is preparing all of us for the different spaces we find ourselves in to start to step into something new, to step into mission, to step into purpose in new ways. Jesus is always doing that in our lives. I hope we can begin to expect that. But I think similar to the disciples, there's this moment of, whoa, okay, now it's, it's my turn and we might be a little shaky at first and it might feel a little bit difficult. I think we can resonate with that. But I hope this story today is an encouragement to us because Jesus actually kind of uncharacteristically gets very practical about how to do this. He's very practical about what it looks like to step into this mission in our everyday life. And I think he's calling us, just like he's calling them, to say, all right, you've seen what I can do, and now I'm going to do this through you because I give you authority in that way. And so we're going to start in Matthew 9. At the very end of the chapter, oftentimes we have these chapter markers in our, in our Bibles that I would actually say we should start this story right before the end of chapter 9 and go into chapter 10. So if you have a Bible or an app, you can pull up Matthew 30, uh, verse 34 is where I'm going to start. Scholars call this the mission discourse, Jesus' mission discourse, where he's really describing uh, what it means to be on mission. And we're not going to even read all of it today, but I encourage you to continue on after we end today. But let's start in Matthew 9. Uh, where Jesus is, they're, they're kind of summarizing what Jesus had done, and we see Jesus turn towards the mission discourse. This is what it says in verse uh, 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Okay, so just stop here for a minute. You notice that Jesus is using two metaphors. He kind of mixes metaphors a lot. People say you shouldn't do that, but Jesus did it, so maybe permission for all of us. And so he's starting with this metaphor of, of, of sheep farming, right? The sheep and a shepherd. And he's looking at these people, mostly Jewish people that are coming to him, um, and saying they're like harassed like a sheep without a shepherd. These were marginalized people who were facing uh, so much marginalization and oppression in the space that they were in. And he's coming with this good news of this kingdom that's not of this world, but is one that offers freedom and forgiveness and healing. And they're coming all over the place towards him. And so Jesus says, these are like sheep without a shepherd. And of course, he's the good shepherd. And then he switches metaphors, doesn't he? And he moves from animal farming to agricultural farming. And he says, the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of harvest, but there's not a lot of workers to bring in the harvest. And so pray that God would, the Lord of the harvest, that God would send more people out into the harvest fields to bring people in. So I imagine that... Uh, if you're the disciples, I'm thinking, okay, cool. A metaphor for all these people is sheep. And then another metaphor for all these people is like wheat that need to be brought in to the fold. Um, and these crowds are like a harvest ready to be brought in by the farmers. And I think Jesus is using this image of a harvest metaphorically. However, I want to suggest that he does something interesting that they weren't expecting. All right, so just hold that thought as we continue about this image of a harvest. So let me continue reading in chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and this is key. He gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. And then it says these are the names of the 12 apostles. I'm not going to read them, but it's important that Matthew names them here because this 
Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And whenever the 12 disciples were mentioned, it wasn't really about elevating those 12 people. It was more about saying to the Jewish community, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus names them to say, listen up, everybody. I'm not just talking about those 12 guys. I'm talking about all of y'all. All of you Jewish folks from the 12 tribes of Israel. That what Jesus is about to say is for them too. That's what Matthew's pointing out. And, and so then let's go on in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any towns of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you grow, go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the, we've already heard this so many times in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Remember that. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. He's not talking about staying for dinner. He's talking about staying at their house. Think about that in our context for a second. Staying at their house. Uh, and then it says, as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving of, of your peace, let it rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for that town. Okay, so let's just unpack this a little bit. Jesus is so direct here. Isn't it interesting how he's so specific? He usually talks in parables, which we'll talk about in future weeks. He, sometimes when people ask Jesus a question that seems kind of direct, what does he do? He asks them like four questions. So the fact that Jesus is giving like a play-by-play -play of exactly what to do is actually kind of unique and something to pay attention to. So let's just kind of break down what was Jesus asking them to do in that context, and then we'll talk about what that means for us today. So let's look at the who and the, and the what and the where. Who, who was Jesus inviting them to go to? It says the people of Israel, right? The people of Israel who do not yet know about Jesus. Um, it's interesting that he's saying here, uh, specifically your people, right? The 12 disciples are, are Jewish men, and he's saying we're going to go first to our family, so to speak. And I think it's interesting because I think sometimes when you've had an incredible life change, it's almost easier to tell that story to other people that aren't your people, aren't your family. But here they're being asked to go to your, to your people. And we know from Matthew 28 that Jesus' kingdom is for everybody, every tongue and tribe and nation, it says. But Jesus is strategically having them start with the people of Israel because there was a promise thousands of years earlier that the people of Israel would be a blessing to the whole world. And here now Jesus is bringing that to fruition because that's not exactly what happened leading up till now. And so Jesus is saying, we're going to start with the people of Israel when it comes to talking about this kingdom that has come near. Okay, so where? That's who. Now we'll talk about where. Where were they called to go? Once again, towns and villages is where they're going. Uh, it doesn't necessarily say they're going to big city centers, but they're going to towns and villages where the Jewish community lived. They're going to visit people's homes. Jesus makes it clear you're not just stopping by. This isn't like going from door to door like, hey, what's up? The kingdom of God is near and then going to the next house. That's not what he's doing. He's saying that I want you to go and if th this idea of your peace, like you know what that means. You know, when you meet somebody and it feels like you have that sense of a connection, I believe that God does that between people. You also know what it feels like when someone's like, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> okay, that's your peace returning to you, okay? And so Jesus is just saying when you go, Pay attention because I will put peace between you if it's supposed to be there. And if it's there, then, then stay. Can you imagine going to one of our neighborhoods and inviting ourselves to stay at someone's house? 
I mean, just think about that. That's like a, like culturally taboo, especially in Minnesota for most of our dominant cultures, right? Now, in other parts of the world today, that might not be the case. Um, but what we know about this Jewish culture is that hospitality was huge. In fact, even what he's trying to say about Sodom and Gomorrah there is, is about how they were the opposite of hospitable to people who traveled. They were the worst. And so he's trying to say, I think Jesus is saying, hospitality is the expectation, and so people will receive you. But I do think there's even more to that. Why would people just welcome someone into their house? Maybe because hospitality matters. But let's think about that for a minute. What else, where else, where else was Jesus calling them to go? The towns and the villages. But then I think in verse 9 and 10, we have a clue. It says not to bring anything with you. And then it says, the worker is worth his keep. In the version of this story in Luke 10, it says the worker is wor- is, deserves their wages. You, get, you deserve to get paid for your work, okay? Anyone else agree with that? Any amens? Okay, yeah, you deserve to get paid for the work that you're doing. So Jesus is sending them to work, to towns and villages, and then to work. Well, what kind of work does he say? I want to suggest something today that, that some other scholars say, and I just think this is so interesting, I tend to agree with this, that Jesus is using this metaphor of a harvest. And he's saying there are so many people that haven't heard about the kingdom and you get to be a part of the workers bringing these people to know about Jesus and know about the kingdom of God. But I actually think Jesus is also talking about literal fields with wheat in it that doesn't have enough people to bring in all the wheat. Think about this for a minute. So when people are going to houses, it says in the the Luke version that two by two, they're going in pairs and they go to the house and they say, hey, can I stay with you? They're not just saying like, do you have a, you know, we're couch surfing. They're saying, hey, we're here to work in the fields. Do you need any help? And then the people who are like, oh, good. Because in that time, in that culture, there was a big reliance on migrant workers to come during the harvest time because the harvest was plentiful and the workers were few. And so they needed to come and they were welcomed in and they fed them and they, and take the food. Jesus says, let them pay you for the work. But while you're there, I have some things I want you to do. I'm, I'm serious. I really think it's both of these things. And when you think about that, uh, that Jesus might be having a double meaning here. Jesus is so complex, and I love the way he communicates, that yes, this is a metaphorical harvest of people who need to know about the kingdom of God, that, that the kingdom was, and Jesus was bringing healing and forgiveness and freedom. But also, yes, Jesus meant the literal harvest where wheat needed to be brought in from the fields. And, and this is what some scholars have started to say. This actually almost makes this story make more sense. He tells them, Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Who is the Lord of the harvest? He is, right? Okay, God is the one who makes everything grow. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. He's standing right there. That, that the Lord will send more workers into his harvest fields. And then what does Jesus do? I'm going to send you to go into the harvest fields. I think if I was Jesus, I'd be like, you see what I did there? You're the answer to your own prayers. And he sends them in and he sends them out. And and they go out just like we continue today in many parts of our country and other parts of the world. They rely on people who will come and show up to work for that season. And, And take what they give you because the worker deserves their keep. I think that Jesus sends them to go get a job in a community that really needs that job to be done. And then what? What are they supposed to do when they go? Tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. Tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we don't know exactly what that looks like, but I would imagine it was similar to what was happening every night where they would get together and be like, man, Jesus blew our minds today. Telling these folks that they're meeting about the kingdom of God was telling stories about Jesus and what Jesus had done and how Jesus had healed people and set people free, and how Jesus was offering forgiveness, which was blowing the Pharisees' minds, right? He's offering forgiveness for people. 
And so here they're telling these stories about what they'd seen Jesus do. And then it says, the other part of the what, they're supposed to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Now, uh, we don't have any account of the disciples raising anyone from the dead literally, but as the healing of the sick is sometimes physical and spiritual, I think part of the meaning of that, and we could go into it further, is this idea of resurrection, that people need new life in their life, that they need things to almost die off and start again. And Jesus is saying, like, you're going to bring into this new life. They're going to go and do what they had watched Jesus do. It was time for them to put into practice what they had been watching Jesus do that had been blowing their minds. It was just like Amos and Mabel. It's time for you to go out. You're going to skate. It's going to be tough, but it's time to do it. So they can stay on the side and watch if they want, but I think Jesus is saying, you can do this. I'm going to give you really clear instructions so you don't freak out, and then you're going to go, and you're not going to be by yourself. You're going to do it. You're going to do it together. Now let's stop here for a minute. I, I don't want to be someone who generally speaking, criticizes Jesus' strategy, all right? However, I think that we could pause for just a minute and just have some critical thinking about what Jesus is doing here. Think about this. Jesus had been drawing these large crowds, like such big crowds that sometimes he had to send them away. There were so many people coming to experience, to actually experience the kingdom of God come in their midst. People couldn't wait to reach out and touch him. Uh, and if Jesus is deciding to scale this thing, like, hey, it's time to have a growth strategy, I kind of feel like there could be other ways besides going to the small towns with a couple guys. Just think about it for a minute. What, he, he doesn't send the disciples out. I mean, he could do various things, right? Couldn't he go out and send the disciples and say, bring people back to me and big, get bigger and bigger crowds because clearly Jesus is going to be a better communicator than any of them are ever going to be. He's like the best professional of all. So you should bring people to him. That's not what his strategy is, though. Why doesn't he instruct them to go to, like, a big city and stand in the city square and maybe get up on something and just holler about the stories that they've heard and people will come and then maybe they can wow them in front of everybody with the miracles that they now know how to do? But that's not what Jesus tells them to do. Jesus doesn't seem to be thinking about the most effective growth strategy that some of us might think would be an effective growth strategy. But this is his strategy, do you notice how it's not the strategy that we would maybe default to even in the church today? Two people going together to these towns, bringing nothing with them, not even anything but the clothes on their back, nothing extra, nothing to give away and to draw people and to make them think that there's something special here, just themselves. They go and they get a job. <laughs> they go to people's houses. They eat with people, become a part of people's lives, become a part of the everyday life of the, the sheep who need a shepherd, the sheep who need to know about this shepherd that they've spent so much time with. And then Jesus says, hey, look, if some people don't receive you, that's okay. It's not about you. You can just move on. It's okay. Like, just keep going, and when you find the place where the peace comes, then this is your people. Your job is to look for those people of peace, and when you find them, stay with them. Be people who are committed. They've got work that needs to be done. Go out there and do it. And then, when you're out there working, you're going to see who needs healing, won't you? And not only would, let, let's just think about this for a minute. If, you're, if, if it is really true that some of these people, some of the disciples are out in the fields, and someone's hurt their back, this is their livelihood. This is their life's work. And so, if, if the disciple said, well, hey, I, I, let me tell you about this guy, and he says that I have authority to pray for healing, is that what you want? They might say, yeah, anything, whatever. 
and think about how life-changing that was for people who would experience that healing in the field in some ways like that, or as they're sitting around the dinner table, or as they're spending time together. You'll see who needs healing. You'll see who needs freedom. When you do life with people, you see the people who are ready to experience the forgiveness and the unconditional love that God has for them. Just imagine what this would have been like. Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, cares about the work that needs to be done in the field, but he also cares about the worker who's doing it and their hearts and their lives and their souls. And and he calls them to go to these sheep who need a good shepherd because he's the good shepherd, but guess what else? He's also going to choose to be their sacrificial lamb. And this is what he was preparing the people to know. Now, I don't know about you, but when I really recognized this passage and the, the strategy that Jesus is employing here, it, it honestly, it was, it was a lot for me to wrestle with because this is not the strategy that we often employ. Like I said, we tend to think about what? Bigger, flashier, gather a crowd, gather a following, get an influence uh, maybe in the political sphere or in social media or whatever our thing is. How about this? Let's make a few people professional gospel people. Then we don't have to do it. We can just get people to go to those people. Like, this is our strategy so often. But that is not Jesus' strategy here. Jesus' strategy might not look like the conventional wisdom of how to start a movement today. There's many movements out there, right? But the depth of the wisdom of this strategy makes it so effective that we are all here 2,000 years later because of it. Think about that. The same kingdom coming in our midst now that they were talking about then. And I don't think that all of these instructions perfectly translate into our lives. I don't suggest going out today without a coat on. It's, you know, 14 degrees this morning. I don't take it overly literally. But I do think that this strategy is still what Jesus invites us into today. To go out there, make yourself productive in society, take your wages for your hard work, but you're always there for a deeper purpose at the same time, to be in the lives of the people that you work with, to be in the lives of the people that you live near, to receive hospitality. That's maybe harder for some of us, right? To offer hospitality. To be people who are willing when you get to know someone to say, I can pray for that healing in your life. To be someone willing to share vulnerably when you need healing in your life. You start to see what needs resurrection in other people's lives when you spend time with them and you're around them and you're with them in it. Whether being in it is where you live or where you work or where you learn or where you play. All of those places, you see these people in your, I call them your everyday spaces. We're already there. And I I think that God can give us eyes to see the ways that the enemy is often working in people's lives. Most of the time, lying to them about who they are and who God thinks that they are. Lying to them about their identity and their worth. And I've met people all over the world. What a privilege. And everywhere I go, there are people who are in desperate need of healing and forgiveness and freedom and to know their identity is made in the image of God. Everywhere. So on one hand, I think this is encouraging. Isn't it encouraging? Like, basically, we're already doing this. We are already working amongst people, living amongst other people. And I'd say most of us are off the hook from trying to draw a crowd and wow them with miracles. So if you thought that was something that God was calling you to do, Let me know, but I think most of us are off the hook for that one. That's not what Jesus' strategy is. I know that most of us feel like a little shaky about this, though, because on the other hand, while we're off the hook from the miracle celebration parties, we're on the hook in a whole other way, aren't we? To be people who are looking for those people of peace everywhere that we go. To be people who are paying attention to what God is doing and to join in in those everyday spaces. 
Whether we're on vacation or we're at home or whether we're at work, we're looking for the ways that God's inviting us to, to strap on our spiritual skates. And it might be shaky at first, but we're going to try to do what Jesus did because we bear his name as Jesus' followers. So I know most of us can get a little shaky when it, we think about healing. I talked about that a few weeks ago. That, that's okay. Most of us, when we think about how we pray for healing in Jesus' name, it's a little bit awkward and new for some of us. Uh, we can get in our heads a lot about what it means to have authority in the name of Jesus, and that's okay. We can talk about that. Um, but we have that authority in the name of Jesus uh, against evil and against the enemy in our everyday spaces. Whether we notice what that enemy is doing or not, there is a spiritual battle happening. Most of us can feel kind of unsure about what it means to talk about the kingdom of God having come near. I don't suggest walking into your workplace and saying, the kingdom of God has come near. Like that's not, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, but what does that mean for us contextually? To share the stories of what God has done in our life and how we see the kingdom breaking in and also how we trust the future kingdom in our life. Just like learning to skate, just like learning to do anything you've ever done, it can start a little bit shaky at first. But we have to choose to try. We do it together. We keep at it. And if we fall, if we shed a few tears like little Mabel, we get back up and we try again. Something we say here at Mill City every week is that our mission is to love our community in the name of Jesus. And that in the name of Jesus part is not just like a cute thing that we say. In that is where we find the authority. We have no authority in the spiritual realm, no authority in healing and freedom and forgiveness outside of the name of Jesus. And so when we say we're loving people in the name of Jesus, we assume that that means that there's authority. Jesus sends us all out to live alongside other people, to, to work alongside them, to eat with them, to do life with people. And in those everyday spaces, we have authority to pray for healing, to pray for people to experience God's total forgiveness and unconditional love. We have the authority to pray against the way that the enemy has, uh, has efforts in people's life. We have authority in that. So here's kind of my main thing I want you to take with today. Jesus gives us authority and power to offer his healing, freedom, and forgiveness. Jesus gives us, he chooses that. You see that right there. He gives them, he gives us authority in his name and power to offer healing, freedom, and forgiveness. I'm going to tell you one short story just as an example. I could tell you a lot of stories about what this looks like, but this is the one that came to mind. A few years ago, a family called me and they said, we don't really know what to do. Can you come over? Because our, our son, we just moved into a new house and our son, he's three years old. He's having these terrible nightmares. He never had nightmares before we moved. He's having nightmares at night. He's having them during his nap. And I'm like, okay, I'm coming over. And I think that's because they, they tried everything else. And so I was the last ditch effort. And so I show up and I'm like, well, hey, look, I don't know. He could just be an imaginative three-year-old. Most three-year-olds are. But I also think, and I've experienced, that kids tend to have uh, extra spiritual sense. They are very sensitive to the, to the spirit and the spiritual realm in ways that adults often aren't. In fact, I think pets do too, but that's a different sermon. So the children, <laughs> the children have this awareness of what's going on spiritually. And I said, so we don't know for sure why he's having the dreams. I'm not telling you not to take him to the doctor or whatever, but let's just assume that before you moved into the house, that there was also some spiritual forces that were not of God that were here. And, and let's just pray about that. And in fact, you know what? You don't even need Pastor Steph here. You are followers of Jesus. You can do these prayers. 
They looked at me like a deer in headlights, and I was like, I will do these prayers with you, and you will learn, okay? And so we went through it very simple, and I started, and then they started to learn the prayers. And it's no magic words, really, except for in the name of Jesus, where the authority and power comes. We just went from room to room, stood in each doorway, spent extra time in his room, and we just said, if there's anything from God that's not in this place, we demand that you get out of here in the name of Jesus. Whatever assignment that you were on here before this family moved in, it's over. You need to get out because there's only space for the Holy Spirit in this home now. And then we went outside and we walked around the perimeter of their property and we did the same thing. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't anything that crazy except for believing that Jesus gives us authority. We didn't see anything happen or anything like that. The next day, they give me a call, and they're so excited on the phone, and they're like, oh my gosh, we got to tell you what happened. So, so last night, he didn't have any nightmares for the first time, and then he didn't have any nightmares for his, during his nap, and I'm thinking, this is awesome. And they were like, no, there's more. And then we said to him, okay, so um, how was your nap, three-year-old, right? He says, it was beautiful. They said, well, that was different. And so then they wanted to kind of like push into the further. They said, uh, you know, tell us, was there any of the things you saw? Like, what about this? He had, he had been having these pictures of this old man, like messing with his stuff and trying to scare him, like in his room, like an old man. So he kept saying the old man. So they said, did the old man, was the old man there when you were sleeping? And the three-year-old just says so practically, no, Jesus carried the old man out of the house. <laughs> and then he said, yeah, he, he's not here. And they said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, he can't come over past that line. And, and he, the old man and all the monsters, they have to stay over there. And he points to the bottom of their driveway. Exactly where we had walked and prayed. Most of the time that I've done the exact thing I just described, I don't hear a story about a three-year-old saying that the next day. But that doesn't mean that something seriously hasn't shifted in the spiritual realm. And so I'm just telling you that simple story to say we have this authority in the name of Jesus to step into these spaces to offer healing and freedom and forgiveness, not because of us, but because of what Jesus has done in our life. Jesus gives us authority to do what he's done, starting with the people right around us. So I don't know about you, but I've noticed that everywhere we go, this is a reality, that people in our everyday spaces are in need of healing and forgiveness and freedom just like we are. And we get to be people who share that story. As the band comes up, I just want to encourage you to think about the same thing we just learned. When it comes to how Jesus is sending you into your everyday spaces, what is your who and your where and your what? Who and what and where? What, who are the people of peace in your life? I, I don't know for sure, but it's time to pay attention to that. Because God will open up amazing things. It's God that puts the peace between you and other people. Who, what, what are the things that Jesus is giving you authority to do in his name? When it comes to praying for healing or speaking with authority against evil, just like the story that I just told. To share about the power of forgiveness. Some of you have experienced the radical forgiveness of God in your life. It's changed you. And that's a story that you get to tell. And then where? Where in your everyday life are you called on mission? Where are you called to notice the reign of God, the kingdom of God? How does your everyday space change when you notice the reign of God in that space? I mean, the answer to the question where is everywhere, right? Everywhere that we go. But I have found that most people feel a special calling to a certain part of their life, their work, their neighborhood, maybe their extended family. Um, sometimes it's like a group of people that you all sit on the soccer stands with while your kids are playing sports. And you just feel, if you pay attention, you're called to those people of peace specifically or an interest group or something like that. Jesus gives us this strategy, and it's not like the growth strategies of consumerism or creating a following or launching some sort of one-time event, but to be intentional in our everyday lives to love our communities in the name of Jesus with the authority that we have in his name.
So I encourage you to ask this week these questions. Who's your who and your what and your where? Maybe write that down and think about that this week. Now, as we close, there's one very important thing I want to leave with you when it comes to receiving the authority that Jesus has in our life. If we're going to live into mission in the name of Jesus and with Jesus' authority, this is a key. Jesus gives authority to us when we give authority over our lives to him. Jesus gives authority to us when we give authority over our lives to him. When we surrender to Jesus and say, my life is yours. There's a lot that Jesus says in Matthew 10. Let me quote verse 38 and 39. I encourage you to read the rest. He says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And I think if I was just going to translate what Jesus would be saying in, in kind of our language today, I think he would just say, give it up. Give up striving to try to find your own purpose and meaning all the time. I made you to go into the work that you're doing, into the relationship that you have, but let it go and surrender it to me and let me give my authority in your life. It's not going to be easy, just like carrying a cross, but it's going to be worth it. And it's going to be worth all that you have to give to me, to give that authority to me, because when you give up your life, it's then that you will truly live. If you give Jesus authority in your life, Jesus gives us authority in the kingdom of God. If we give up our life and give it to Jesus, it's then that we will truly live, now and forever with him.